Welcome to the Bad Brain Curio Shop, everybody. This is the edition for March of 2014. This is your host, Aaron, apologizing once again for being late on recording. What can I say? Life gets in the way sometimes, and I'm really sorry about that, but I'll try my best to stay on schedule. We'll see what we get. So, starting this week with some shout-outs, uh, I don't have any shout-outs for the quotation because everybody let me a little bit down, and no one got it without a little prodding. I will give an honorable mention to John Brothers. He did figure it out, but he skipped the podcast to the end and listened to it. Also, a shout out to Adrian. It'll be two years together on Friday, and she hasn't ran screaming yet, so I'm going to call that a win. So happy anniversary, hun, a little bit early, and a shout out to you. Um, That's all I have for shout outs this week. Hopefully we can do a little bit better with the quotation of the week. This is two or three weeks in a row that nobody has gotten it, which is kind of depressing. So either nobody's actually listening to this thing, which doesn't make a lot of sense because people are asking me when I'm going to post the next one, or you guys aren't seeming to watch the same movies that I do, which is kind of depressing. So I'll try and find something a little bit easier this week, see if we can catch some people. But uh, don't forget, when I uh, put up that quotation, either uh, email your answer to bbcs at aaronmbond.com, or you can tweet me at badbraincurio. Uh, So for stuff of the week, the word is obduracy. That actually means resistance to persuasion. So if one is uh, hard-hearted and hard to persuade, that would be somebody who exhibits a lot of obduracy or is very obdurant, I think is the proper form of that term. Saw it in a book recently, thought it was a pretty cool word, so I thought I'd throw it out here. Album of the week. I'm going to go with uh, Linkin Park's A Thousand Sons. If you're at all even a little bit of a hard rock fan, Linkin Park is a good band. But this is easily their best album out there. And it's funny because that's a unpopular opinion among Linkin Park fans, but this is my personal opinion right now. A Thousand Sons has a lot of very different styles of music on it. It feels like they experimented a whole lot with it while staying under a unifying umbrella of a theme. The lyrics are powerful. The music is exciting. Like, if I want to get shit done, I put on this album and listen to it while I'm going. So... If you're at all a Linkin Park fan or at all like uh, Harder Rock, I recommend A Thousand Sons, and that's the album of the week. So yeah, just running right through. That's about all I've got for stuff of the week. Personal stories? uh, Not a ton that I didn't cover last time. I've been doing a lot of work, which is part of the reason that I'm uh, delayed this week. I've been working a lot on NPR's uh, weather system. We're trying to replace some of the computers that handle emergency weather, and that's fallen onto my shoulders. And uh, It's been really interesting work so far, but pretty challenging because I'm working with a lot of lower-level stuff, stuff like serial connections and things I haven't seen in years because I don't typically work with computers that are connected to this kind of 
engineered equipment. So it's been a lot of fun, but it's also been really time-consuming. Also at work, we have a uh, tradition of going out every Thursday for something where we overeat. We call it High Calorie Thursday. And somebody introduced me to something both amazing and horrifying at the same time. Apparently there are hidden menu items at Chipotle, which include the quesarito. Now, before any of you try this, I recommend you look behind you in line, because the quesarito takes a lot of time to make, and at the Chipotles we've gone to, they have been aware of it, but they don't like to do it when there's a lot of people in line, because you'll slow everyone else down. But what the quesarito is, and they charge you for a quesadilla and a burrito, is they take one of the tortillas, and they sprinkle cheese all over it, fold it, steam it so that the cheese melts a little bit, open it back up, lay another tortilla on top of that, essentially making a quesadilla, press that together, but then that becomes the shell of your burrito. Your incredible yet horrifyingly fattening burrito. I have seen a couple of guys try it at work, and they did finish it, but I thought it was really impressive that they did so. But once they were finished with it, you know, they were promoting siestas at NPR in the afternoons. So don't do it if you need a lot of energy later in the day, because the whole thing is going to slow your digestive system down by a lot. Speaking of slowing digestion down because of overeating... Restaurant week was also uh, this past month, and Adrian and I did our Fogo de Chao uh, stop. For those of you who don't know Fogo, uh, it's one of the better restaurants if you're a carnivore. So Fogo de Chao is a Brazilian-style steakhouse. And what they do there is they have a bunch of people with swords of meat. When you picture that in your mind, you're probably going to be pretty accurate. It's like a long skewer with meat on it, usually a specific cut like lamb chops or maybe they'll have like this is the ribeye or this is the Brazilian beef or this is the garlic beef or, um, you know, this is the strip area. You know, all these different kinds of beefs on these swords and they walk around and they give you a card and on one side of the card it's red, on one side of the card it's green. And then they just give you an empty plate, and people will just come over and say, would you like some of this? I'm going to cut it off for you. Green means continue filling my plate as long as you want to, and red means please stop, I'm going to explode. And you can switch back and forth between them throughout the meal, so you can take a little breathing break, you know, when you get the meat sweats or something like that. So it is one of my favorite places to eat. I usually go there for my birthday, but it was also fun to go there this time around because it's usually 50 bucks a person for the whole experience. For restaurant week, it drops down to 35 which makes it a pretty affordable deal, especially considering you don't have to eat anything else that day. Um, the food is absolutely delicious. It's some of the best steak that you could possibly get. The quality is very high. And their salad bar is great, too, though I have heard it said that that's more of a uh, distraction. That's designed to save them money on beef. So Adrian and I ate there, and between that and quesaritos, I am pretty certain that I need to go on a diet and have already 
re-begun my diet this week, mostly to ensure that I don't die. A lot of this past month has been about food, and really, really delicious food at that. What are the personal stories? Oh, my cat Diogenes, who's actually really old. She's only um, five pounds. She's lost a lot of weight, and she is 14 years old. She's still very active, runs around a lot, is still very with it, but because of her age, we brought her in and she has a, I believe it's an enzyme deficiency, but it's caused by a thyroid imbalance. Now, that wouldn't be that notable except for the treatment options that we were given. The doctor told me, well, there's two things we could do. One is we could medicate her, which a lot of people choose to do because it's not that expensive. It's about 30 bucks for a 90-day supply, if I'm remembering right, or maybe it's a little more than that. But it's just a little topical cream that you rub into her ear, and then it absorbs topically, and it rebalances her thyroid, and everything's fine. But it's not curative. She has to keep taking it. He said the other option is curative, but it's very expensive. And that's, they actually inject the cat with a radioactive iodine isotope that obliterates the out-of-control thyroid cells. Which begs the question, you know, do the cats have these issues because in the wild they never actually live this long. So the fact that they're living this long has sort of expanded them past the way they're thyroid was meant to go uh that's a philosophical question for another time but anyway what i found funny about this because i was like so is it the iodine that's really expensive like what is it that's so expensive about this treatment he's like no the treatment itself is not too bad but the cat has to be hospitalized during that time and so it's like really why is that is does it make her really sick you know i'm thinking radiation radiation can make you really sick and he's like no the cat's fine but the cat can make other people sick. The cat is actually radioactive and they require, you know, special special attention to keep the handlers from being sick. So they would radiate my cat until it no longer had a thyroid problem and then I'd have to wait for her half-life to cut down a little bit before I'd be able to have her at home, you know. I asked if there were other benefits, if I could read by my kitty's glow or, you know, if she would have freaking laser beams for eyes, but I was told that as of yet, that has not happened. But I found the treatment options interesting, and I did end up going with the medication just because the curative treatment is so expensive, and she's old enough that, you know, it's sad to say, but we would break probably about even doing either. She doesn't mind it. She seems to have liked the... uh, the stuff in her ears. She's gained a little bit of weight since the last time we brought her in, and she's feeling a lot better, so I'm confident in my decision. I just thought it was an interesting option that I could have changed my cat into a nuclear-powered superhero, but I chose not to. So that's, I mean, that's really all that's going on personally lately. It's been kind of kind of a quiet few weeks ju- on my personal level, just because I've been so busy with work and just kind of felt I haven't had a ton of time to do personal endeavors, including a podcast. So that's why this section is kind of short. I'm also going to start this week with a new section, which I call the Bad Brain Tech Explanation. 
the bad brain tech explanation is going to be me explaining some tech topic of your choice if I get one. So next week or the week after, if you guys have any other questions about something on the internet or something with computers or something about how some technology works, if you uh, send it to me at bbcs for Bad Brain Curio Shop at aaronmbond.com or you can tweet me at Bad Brain Curio. I'll try and find the answer for you so that we can um, figure it out or if I just know it, I'll try and explain it in um, layman's terms. So my friend John has uh, asked me a lot of questions about the NSA lately and what it is that's really concerning me about the revelations that have happened because Snowden has come forward. And I took some time to explain some of the things to him, and he essentially told me to add this to my podcast, that it might be something other people want to hear and other people want to have explained. So I put together a little bit of a story this week. It's kind of important for me to state a couple of things up front I've done my best to do my research here, and I've done my best to gather sources. But that said, I'm no journalist. At best, this is going to be an editorial piece. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, potentially at worst, it'll sound like an angry letter to an editor. Uh, In addition to that, if any of you guys listening think I sound in any way official, I thank you. But at the same time... I'm going to put all of the links that I can in the show notes to what I'm about to explain. And basically, I'm going to let you know, read the news outlets for yourself. Take a look at what they say, because this piece should be taken as editorial and not journalistic. what it really boils down to with me is I think that the NSA's collection of undisclosed data and all of their methods that have been exposed since the Snowden uh, leaks really undermines the security of Americans and the security of the internet at large. And I think this is really true for three key reasons. One is the NSA is systematically weakening security standards that are currently in use. Two, They're collecting information in a single, abusable, and hackable place. And three, they're undermining trust between U.S. companies and foreign entities. So the one that probably people are most concerned about is the fact that they're weakening security standards in current use, or at least that's the one I'm most concerned about. And the two places I'll talk a little bit about this is just sort of an explanation of not even something that's in the news, and this is where it'll get very editorial, uh, but something that I do fear that they're working on, and that's attempting to compromise SSL, which is when you log into a website via HTTPS as opposed to HTTP. I feel like the NSA, if they haven't already attempted, are certainly poised to undermine this system. And secondly, I'll just talk a little bit about some of what the leak has already told us about how they're forcefully weakening encryption. 
So first, the SSL TLS, both of those names are for the same thing. TLS is a newer version of the same protocol. I want to start by explaining what SSL is. The internet is kind of like a giant party line. If you are on the same subnet as me and you open up a program called a packet sniffer, you can read anything that goes back and forth across that line. So... Um, I don't know if anybody here is going to be old enough to understand what a party line is. A party line is an old telephone line where everybody shared the same line within a community. So you would pick it up to dial somebody and you would hear your neighbor's conversation. You'd say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll call back later. The internet's kind of like that. So anywhere on the line, if we're in the proper subnet, I can see all traffic that's going all directions if I want to. SSL is the way that we attempt to solve that and one other problem. So what SSL attempts to do is make certain, A, that anybody who's listening on the line while I'm speaking back and forth can't read what I'm saying and can't hear what I'm saying. And two, it tries to confirm that the person on the other end of the line actually is who I hope to talk to. For example, if you're going to Amazon.com, and that's the example I'll use throughout this explanation, you would hope that the person on the other end isn't just saying, yeah, trust me, I'm Amazon.com, and then writing down your credit card information and selling it for profit. SSL helps you do that. So the way that it works is when you first start up with your website, your browser has a list of people that it trusts. It's called the Certificate Authorities, and that's built into the browser when you install it. Certificate Authorities are the people who create SSL certificates. Uh, SSL certificates are a little bit like passports. They say, I am who I am, and this is where I come from. And also, these are the people who can vouch for me. So your browser goes out to Amazon.com under HTTPS because you want to log in and use your credit card number. Amazon.com's first job is to send you a certificate saying, here's who I am. Now, you don't want to blindly trust that because it doesn't make sense to blindly trust that. Anybody could create one of these certificates and give it to you. But the certificate says, by the way, this was signed by this authority. You can go and check with them. If your browser hasn't gone there recently, it will. It will go out to whatever that authority is, and it will say, hey, this guy gave me certificate yada, yada, yada with hash, yada, yada, yada. Is this guy legit? The authority will answer yes or no. If it answers no, you'll get one of those nasty screens that says, hey, this is potentially a bad request. Proceed at your own peril. But most of the time, they'll say, yep, that's the guy. Go ahead and commence connection. Once your browser hears back that yes, it says, okay... I'm going to give you a key. Now, a way to think of this is a little bit like if you went to the hardware store and you bought a whole bunch of padlocks that all took the same key, and the person on the other end did the same thing. You would send each other a key. So you'd each have a key to that guy's padlocks. And then from then on, when you're sending information, you would lock it in a box with your padlock and only the guy on the other end could open it with the key that you sent them. That's the next step that happens in SSL. These keys are sent back and forth that says, whenever I send you something, you can read it with this. 
So once the key exchange happens, then applications send data back and forth, and you're able to read them on either end because you have those keys that you set up. But no one else is able to read them in the interim because it just looks like garbled junk without being able to unlock that padlock. Now, there are some potential weak points in this system. First is the one that is most commonly heard about. You may have even heard this if you're in the IT game. The man-in-the-middle attack. Now, the way the man-in-the-middle attack works is someone contacts a man-in-the-middle saying, I'm looking for Amazon.com, and that guy responds, I'm Amazon.com. And then he takes the request that you sent him saying, I'm looking for Amazon.com, and still forwards it to Amazon. So he still gets all the information that you're expecting to see, but then he sends it onward to make certain that you get information that's valid. He sits in between and listens to both sides of the conversation. So it looks like everything is coming from Amazon, but what's really happening is it's all coming from a middleman who's reading all of your data in between. Now, this is tricky to do for lots of reasons, including the fact that security certificates say what IP address you're coming from, so you have to spoof both sides. So it's not an easy attack to do, but it's one of the potential attacks. Another possibility is if you just happen to have the keys, say you have Amazon's master key, it doesn't really matter if it's encrypted going back and forth. You can read everything that Amazon says. Finally, the one that worries me a little bit more about the NSA than about anybody else is what if you have an in with the authority? Now, we'll talk a little bit later about FISA courts and how the NSA can put pressure on American companies to either give them information or change their practices. But imagine that was possible, and the NSA went to one of these authorities that you go to to say, hey, is Amazon really Amazon? And they say, you know, you have to say that, yes, we're Amazon if he asks about us. All of a sudden, your browser is just going to start trusting certificates both from the real Amazon and from the NSA, Because, you know, it says on the certificate, check with this guy, I checked with that guy, and he says he's okay. That's a real danger. And the fact that we know the NSA is putting pressure on companies to do a lot of different types of encryption um, weakening that I'll speak about later, it means that this is also possible. We also know that the NSA has been making a lot of data requests from Google and Yahoo, what we don't know is whether or not they've pressured them to give them the encryption keys that they use to speak over SSL. If that's the case, if they were given their SSL private key, then it doesn't matter that the entire chain is secure according to SSL because somebody has a key that was never meant to be given to them. And that's extremely dangerous and extremely frightening. As of yet, most of the Snowden documents only hint at things that lead to the possibility that they could do something on this level. The reason this level is scary is because it means all private data on the internet is off. Uh, Anything that you typically go to that requires private data, be it your password, be it your credit card number, be it, you know, even private messages, uses this mechanism to connect those things. So if we have reason to believe the NSA can infiltrate that, then nothing is off the table. And that's why this particular attack is scary. 
But that's not the only way they could potentially weaken security standards. We actually know that they've forcefully weakened encryption. Now, encryption is... How do I put it? Encryption is like ciphers. If you've ever seen the Christmas story and they have that secret decoder ring that you know gives them the message, always drink your Ovaltine, encryption is kind of like that. But the way it works is converting the numbers back into the letters that you need is a math problem that is so difficult that it would take most computers in the world over thousands of years to actually calculate it if they weren't given the answer key to the math problem. That's the reason encryption works, is because there are certain types of programs that are incredibly difficult for computers to run and solve without help. So, there have been lots of encryption schemes over the years, and many of them have been known to have flaws. So, you have this math problem, it looks really difficult to solve at the surface, but then somebody discovers there's a shortcut, a way to break the code faster, and thusly, you can break it with a standard computer as opposed to needing 10 supercomputers and hundreds of years of computing time. That's what happens whenever security standards change. What's really happening is they're changing the math for it to be harder for the computer. And I know that this is an oversimplification for anybody who's listening who's more technically advanced, but I'm trying to make this as accessible as possible. Anytime you do anything private on the computer, including the previously mentioned secure sockets layer HTTPS stuff, it's based on this really hard math. What's scary is the NSA has recently been exposed by Snowden's documents uh, for what they called Project Bull Run. Now, Bull Run has been an effort to undermine the security in encryption in basically any means possible. So some of the history of the program. In the 90s, the NSA and the FBI tried to promote uh, what they called key escrow, or tried to find back doors in these math problems. Essentially, find the cheats that get around them. The problem is, is these math problems are written by people who are very smart. And a lot of times, these backdoors simply didn't exist. And it was well publicized that most of the FBI and the NSA's efforts during this time period failed. Because if encryption is done well, it is extremely hard to crack. Move forward, and the New York Times recently reported on leaked documents that show the NSA feared widespread encryption, and of course that's encryption they can't break, So they set out to stealthily influence and weaken encryption standards and also obtain master keys. They're either going to do this by agreeing with companies, by forcing them legally, or by network exploitation or hacking, breaking in and stealing the keys. The part that's really kind of scary about this was not the master keys piece, because this is kind of what we expect the NSA and other agencies to do, steal the keys that allow them to read the data. What's really frightening about this is the fact that they were attempting to weaken encryption standards at the same time. Essentially, they're influencing the makers of locks because they can't break open locks. So they said, over time, we're going to strong-arm people as much as possible to make them more brittle and more easily shattered. The reason that's scary is 
the NSA isn't the only person who's trying to break open this encryption at any point in time. If the NSA weakens encryption to the point of where it's breakable, yeah, maybe only they know it at, you know, the period of time that they cause the influence. But there are many very intelligent hackers out there that are looking at it and saying, you know what? I found this weakness. I don't know why it's here. It's kind of an obvious one, but it's available. And what the New York Times reported is that there is this big project in the NSA documents that Snowden released that has essentially been a multi-year push against the companies that create encryption to make certain they make encryption weaker. That makes us all less safe, not just from the NSA, but from anybody. So, because of their influence in Secure Sockets layer, or potential influence, I should say, but we don't know what we don't know, um, and also because we know factually that they have been attempting to weaken encryption standards, they are weakening the security standards that we use to keep ourselves safe on the internet right now. problem with the NSA is that they're collecting information into a single abusable and hackable place. It's kind of the same reason why, say you make over $100,000 and you need to put it into bank accounts. Even before the Federal Insurance Corporation came out and said that we would only protect up to $100,000 in any bank account, it still made a lot of sense to spread that money among multiple bank accounts. Because if for any reason any of them are compromised, you don't want them to be compromised for everything that you own, just part of it. This is also the same reason that everybody should have a different password for every different site. If you're compromised on one site, the password that they use there, they can take and use anywhere else. So the problem with the NSA collecting information in this way means that all of our eggs are in one basket. If they have a massive collection via their PRISM project of all of Americans' data, then that is cyber-terrorism target number one. You crack that egg, you get everything in the United States. And that creates a major security concern. And it does it for a couple of reasons. One is, even if we were to assume that the NSA is 100% secure, and for the record, no one is 100% secure ever. Like, that's security 101, is you're never unbreakable. You're just hard to break. But even if we could trust the NSA with this information, at least to not leak it, why do we trust the people working for the NSA? And secondly, we can't really trust them with this information. So first, we have to remember that the NSA is made up of people. The NSA is made up of a lot of people who work at a company, and these people have lives, they have feelings, they have flaws. Even though we might put it into a secure database that can only be read by those employees, we're trusting that every one of those employees are going to be good stewards of all of our private information. That's a falsehood. The London Telegraph reported that the eavesdropping unit of the NSA had used their data to spy on their lovers. 
Now that's, that's really kind of terrifying in and of itself. You're dating somebody who works for the NSA and they're using it to spy on you. They even had a code name for this practice. They called it Love Int for Love Intelligence. And the leaked documents from Snowden exposed that the agency had broke its own privacy rules nearly 3,000 times in one year. Even if you have nothing to hide, and even if you fully trust that the agency is 100% secure and the data will never go beyond those four walls, there's no reason to believe that all of the people within those four walls are 100% trustworthy. It takes too much manpower to collect this kind of data to vet everyone who works at an agency. And we've already seen through leaked documentation that we have a lot of people abusing that power already. And once that power's out, there's nothing we can do about it. Secondly, we're putting all of our eggs in this one basket. We're making one giant target for cyber terrorists. Think about it. If all of the major information in the world is going into the NSA, if their dragnet policies are stocking all of this metadata and information about us, who would be more attractive a target than to crack that one? And say they did, because again, no one is 100% secure. That would be a catastrophic data leak. It would make Target look like nothing. And it would greatly undermine our national security because now the same sort of spying we use to allegedly stop terrorism can be used directly against us as well. That's a danger I don't think it makes sense for us to create for ourselves by creating a big clearinghouse of data in one spot. Finally, I feel like the NSA's collection of undisclosed data is undermining our security because it's also undermining the trust between U.S. Comp companies and foreign entities. You have to remember that the United States companies are all under the umbrella of United States law. And as United States law is exposed to be potentially spying and abusing its power, those companies are less trusted by foreign entities. This has been shown in two different ways. One is web giants have been forced to turn over all their data to FISA courts. I'm talking mostly about like Google and Yahoo, Microsoft, uh, Facebook. And I'll talk a little bit about what FISA courts are in a second. And secondly, I think that we're really undermining our, undermining our foreign business uh, potential by encouraging segmented internets. If the internet at large is spied on by the United States then what keeps the European Union from creating their own tiny sub-pocket of the Internet? And when they do, what does that do for the rest of the world? And what does it do for us as a country trying to do commerce with them? So first, web giants have been forced to turn over their data by the FISA courts. Now to explain this a little bit, FISA is a private court which decides whether the NSA may issue a data gathering request to a company like Google or Facebook or Microsoft. FISA requests are private matters. The court is closed, the arguments and outcomes are private, and I believe they're classified, which means that the oversight for this court is nothing except potential leakers. So whatever decisions they make, none of us will ever know. Those decisions are then used to request 
from Google, we need this many people's private data. Google is then bound by law not to report A, that that request happened, or B, what was requested. So your information is being leaked, essentially, to the NSA. This is in, again, this is hypothetical, saying that, you know, say a FISA court order was issued. Your information is shared with the NSA. And then after that, the NSA has essentially told Google, you cannot tell them that you're no longer the only person who knows that about them. And you cannot tell them that we ever requested anything at all. That's kind of a scary situation. Just ask Angela Merkel, who recently found out that the United States had been spying on all of her phone records. The Los Angeles Times reported that both Google and Facebook have been pressuring lawmakers to make this a lot more transparent. Essentially, if nothing else, say how many requests the FISA court makes of us publicly, so that we can at least show the public this is what's happening and they can regain some of our trust. The fact that these web giants are pushing for this makes me believe that they fear a clear and present danger to their own business interests from this threat. Secondly, we're encouraging segmented internets throughout the world. So, right now the internet is a full and open network, which means throughout the world any interconnected computer can see all of the resources upon it. That is really beneficial. That openness of the internet is what's given it all of its power. It's what's made it a transformative technology. It's what's allowing you to listen to this podcast, no matter where you are in the world. Because of the spying that's occurred, Angela Merkel and Hollande have been discussing a private European internet network to help mitigate spying efforts made by the NSA, essentially fractioning off the EU and making them a private internet network with only a loose connection to the greater internet at large, according to Reuters. This is a major problem, because if we have a lot of disparate, unconnected internets, then A, the people in the countries that are under that umbrella have no source of truth. We have already seen this in places like China, where the Great Firewall of China, as it's frequently called, blocks any news source that the Chinese government doesn't feel is serving the greater common good. And they're the main arbiters of that. We've already seen that kind of censorship being allowed at that level, and that shouldn't be allowed in general. But on top of that, it means that if a company such as Google or any other American company wants to do business with somebody who's inside that smaller internet weave, They're going to have to make some sort of inroads. They're actually going to have to create some sort of security allowance through there, which requires, A, more people. It requires a lot more configuration. And also creates a new hurdle to doing business in the global world, which is the last thing we want to do if we want to promote business on a global scale. Short, fragmented internets undermine the open nature of the internet at large, and they hamper global business, which threatens our economic stability and threatens our security. So I I hope that I've explained some of the issues here. So first off, we're, we're weakening security standards via the NSA. They have a lot of inroads to potentially threaten the major security piece of the web, which is HTTPS, and they also have 
forcefully weakened encryption through their Project Bull Run. Secondly, they are collecting information in a single, abusable, and hackable place where we already know employees of the agency have been abusing this power. And secondly, we're just assuming that they'll never get hacked and that that major mass of information won't get leaked to some place where it would be a lot more dangerous than simple jealous lovers. And third, we're undermining the trust between United States companies and foreign entities. We're setting up a situation in which web giants are constantly being requested to turn over a bunch of information, potentially about foreign clients, to the NSA, which makes those foreign countries not trust them. And that leads to those foreign countries creating their own private networks, of which we're essentially left out, and the openness of the internet is compromised. In short, the NSA's collection of this undisclosed data is a major security threat. It's the reason I've talked about it so much on this podcast. It's the reason that I'm so fired up about it. As a technologist, I see this as a major problem. And I feel a little like some of the technology people out there... (laughs) facing the curse of Cassandra, because if you're technical and you see how really terrifying some of these issues are, you feel like you're standing in a crowded room with a bunch of people calling you paranoid, um, that people say you're a conspiracy theorist. But the truth is, these are all possibilities that could happen. And once the data is there, once that data and information and capability is collected, you can't unring a bell. The NSA has that ability now, and it can't be taken away or dismantled easily, even if our lawmakers say so. So I hope that this has been a little bit informative, and I know that it's a little bit drier than some of the stuff that I typically put on the podcast, but I had a request for it, and I figured that this might be a a good first topic for this If you have any other topics that you'd like me to cover during the Bad Brain Tech Explanation, you can email me at bbcs at aaronmbond.com, or you can tweet me at badbraincurio. that was it for the bad brain tech explanation movies adrian and i have been watching a lot of movies lately 
That's not correct. We've been watching a lot of Matthew McConaughey lately, is what I should say. Because he's apparently now in every movie under the sun, which I find kind of bizarre because it seems like he dropped off the face of the planet for a while there and then resurfaced as the golden child actor in every film. So I'll start with the one thing I have on my list for movies that he wasn't in, and that's uh, Thor The Dark World. I saw the Thor movie, the first one, not too long ago, expecting less than nothing. I've never read a lot of superhero comics. I'm into more of the literary stuff like Fables and uh, Preacher and that kind of thing. But the concept of Thor just seemed kind of dumb to me. And I'd heard some bad things about that film. So I didn't want to give it much of a chance, but it was free on Amazon. So Adrian and I rented it. And I have to admit, I loved it. I loved it both because they did a really good job taking the Norse mythology and sort of spinning it in a way where it could be a reality in our world. Like it could be something that is sort of parallel to the you know reality I live in. Secondly, I, I really enjoyed it because I just found Chris Hemsworth's portrayal of the character and of course Tom Hiddleston's portrayal of Loki... They're just really compelling and fun to watch. Uh, Both of them were hilarious with playing up those characters' quirks. And of course, Tom Hiddleston has essentially taken over the Marvel franchise. He's now been, of course, in two Thor movies, and he also was the main villain in The Avengers, which is a major get for him, just because that character is played with such finesse and such interest that he drives that entire movie, I think. I really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed the second one, Thor The Dark World. I wouldn't necessarily say as much, but a lot. My my only problem with it is when they're talking about uh, Thor's home world and they're talking about how advanced the technology is, like the scientist from Earth is there, and she's like, wow, you guys have a quantum manipulation, blah, blah, blah. That's really amazing. And she's like, well, I call it a blank. And, you know, they go back and forth and explain what it is. So their technology is super advanced, and yet they're fighting a war primarily with knives and losing it. Like, that's that's the thing that really bothered me. Like, somebody came in, stabbed the queen, and they didn't have the technology to fix that? When, I mean, on Earth, you'd go into surgery. On Earth, you would probably stay alive for a while. And you could go into surgery and maybe get fixed. But apparently in this universe, it's like, oh God, it's our one weakness. They've got something sharp. You know, that that really kind of bothered me. But beyond that, it was a really neat story. And I like what they're doing. And this is where it gets a little spoilery, so I'll just be careful. I liked the tie-in to the other Marvel movies that they've been doing. I liked the tie-in to the Avengers. And I read a little bit about the plot line that they're borrowing from the comic books. And it seems like it's going to be a really interesting plot line. So, liked it a lot. Did not think it was as strong as the first one, but still very much enjoyed it. And now uh, we're going to talk about Matthew McConaughey for an hour. So, hey, how about that? Adrian and I saw Wolf of Wall Street in the theater not too long ago. And that was great. 
Although at the same time, I can see people's complaints about it. What I've heard primarily as a complaint about it is it doesn't tell the story from the other side of the picture. They talk a lot about these anti-heroes and about how their lives are incredibly decadent. They go way over the top um, and they suffer little to no consequence. And the end of the movie really sort of seems to drive that home, that not only has everything that Leonardo DiCaprio's character done during the film absolutely illegal he's going to suffer no problems for the fact that he committed all of these illegal actions either and a lot of people are sort of saying well what's the tale of the other story you know what about the other people the people that because if somebody's being and, and it comes down to almost like the law of conservation of energy you know if somebody's making money somebody else is losing it and they don't tell that story in this film. And I understand the choice not to. I don't think that it would be possible in the time period of a movie, so like two hours, and this one was even longer than that if I remember right, I don't think it's possible to tell both sides of that story. I don't think it's possible to give credence to both what's being felt on one side and on the other and not cut somebody short. So I completely understand the decision that The Wolf of Wall Street is all about Dionysian decadence and how these people got away with murder when not talking about, you know, the people who were on the other end, the victimized people. And also on that route, I do think that there are a lot of outlets, there are a lot of news outlets that have talked about the victims of this. So it's more a matter of this is the side of the story that we don't see. And it certainly doesn't paint the main characters in a positive light. I don't think it's celebrating the fact that this happened, per se. I think it's more that it's telling a story kind of independently of judgment and saying this is the entire perspective of this story, take it or leave it for what it is. Matthew McConaughey's part in that is extremely short. It's at the beginning of the film. He's kind of the mentor of Leonardo DiCaprio's character, and he's hysterical. If you've seen any of the previews, you've probably seen the chest-thumping thing that he did. What I read about it and saw him interviewed about was that wasn't written for him. That wasn't based off the character he was playing. The reason that happened is Matthew McConaughey does that to relax before he goes into a take. And Leonardo DiCaprio kind of leaned over and was like, what are you doing right there? And he explained this is sort of a a meditation something to calm me down and something to get me thinking about the role and he just said you should do it the next take let's see how it runs with it and then it ended up in the film so i'll have to see if i can find the youtube link to give you guys of him talking about that but that's a hundred percent mcconaughey like he just came up with that on the spot and now it's the thing that that character is remembered for so I found that really... I, I like little things like that where things that happened in movies happen just because actors made a decision or something happened on the set. The other example of that that comes to mind is... Um, I don't remember. It was Dustin Hoffman's first big film, but his, the famous scene was uh, he almost gets hit by a taxi and he starts pounding on the hood and says, I'm walking here, I'm walking here. And that became a you know just a thing to say when people are driving like idiots. 
Turns out that wasn't planned or written. Somebody drove onto a closed set and almost hit Dustin Hoffman, and he just reacted to it in character. And that's how they ended up where they were. I, I like little things like that where movies sort of come about, or you know, some of the things that we love about movies or some of the scenes that we love most in movies come about organically and not as a part of the writing or even the intended scene. The other movie I'm going to talk about is Dallas Buyers Club. Dallas Buyers Club very strongly features Matthew McConaughey as a as a drug addict who uh, contracts AIDS and has to figure out how to deal with it. He, I think he runs in a rodeo, and there's a very misogynistic culture there, so he gets very defensive about the implication that that might mean he's gay and all those other kinds of things. But what's really interesting about that film and that story is it pulls into question the morality of drug regulation and the morality of telling a dying person that they can't try anything they want to survive. And I can sort of see the slippery slope there, which I'll go into in a second, but the Dallas Buyers Club is all about the fact that he's not taking illegal drugs. He's taking drugs that aren't authorized for sale in the United States. So what people did to get around that was they would bring drugs into the United States and they would set up buyers clubs. And these clubs are where they're selling memberships. So the memberships are essentially the money that they use to go across the border, ship the drugs back, and bring them into the United States, which is partially illegal, but not as illegal as selling it. And then if somebody came to their door saying, you know, you're selling drugs, you can't do that, they're saying, we're giving away drugs, which aren't illegal. And we're just selling memberships to our club. What was striking was, and I believe this is based off a very true story. I'm not sure. I haven't looked to see what the discrepancies are, but I know that it's based off a, a real a real guy. He was given 30 days to live, and he lived many years after that based off the fact that he found his own treatment options, did his own research, and went out and got the drugs necessary while everybody else was taking AZT, which is the drug you most commonly hear about um, in trials for treating HIV and the progression of HIV. Turns out AZT is really bad for you. It's kind of like chemo and cancer like you know the the treatment is sometimes as bad as the disease but he wasn't allowed to have that legally in the united states despite the fact that he was going to die either way now the moral question there is is that right is there a reason to stop somebody from getting the drugs that they feel that they need or trying something even if it you know isn't guaranteed to help or isn't guaranteed to be safe when you don't have anything else else left to lose. The flip side I can see to that, I said I was going to talk about the devil's advocate side of this, is if you go that route, you know, if your prognosis is really bad, you actually have to draw a physical line in the sand. You're going to die within X number of years, weeks, days, whatever, if you're going to try unauthorized or tested drugs. That's kind of a challenging thing because then, you know, a doctor starts to be able to make that moral decision by moving your prognosis around. So we might start having prognoses that are informed more by what it allows people to do 
rather than having an accurate prognosis, and that can be dangerous. And on top of that, it's sort of the Sylvia Plath question, like, we're all dying slowly of something, like, even if it's just time. Where do you draw the line on who's allowed to try something if they're desperate enough? And how desperate is desperate enough? How do you prove that? So that's the other side of that argument. But I found the whole story very intriguing. And Jared Leto and Matthew McConaughey did a wonderful job with the two lead characters in it. Jared Leto is... uh, his second-in-command at the Buyers Club, he's a uh, transvestite that contracted AIDS and essentially is McConaughey's connection into the community. He's the guy that knows everyone who needs these drugs and helps McConaughey fund his operation by finding people who will be willing to pay in order to get them into the United States. So, great film. Really kind of dark. It's hard to, it's hard to watch in places because it's really sad. But it's it's an important story, and I think it's an intriguing question morally. I, I think it's important that us as Americans who live under this drug administration have to face that there is a problem with this high regulation of drugs we have in the industry. So that's all I've got for movies, but continuing with the McConaughey references, let's move on to True Detective. Adrian and I watched the first episode of True Detective, and we were both rather unimpressed with it. It moved pretty slowly. Towards the end, it had some intrigue to it, but otherwise it just seemed like a snuff mystery, and the characters weren't interesting enough in the pilot to really grab our attention. And it took somebody saying to us, no, you need to keep watching, for us to go back, give it another chance, and really, really take a look at everything it had to offer. And what it's been compared to, at least from what I've heard, a lot is um, Twin Peaks. And I can see that. There's a very supernatural aspect to it. It does something Twin Peaks didn't do a lot of, where it jumps around in time. So some of it takes place in the present, some of it takes place in the past. And there are multiple tiers of the past in this show so far. But beyond the first episode, the characters do get more interesting. You get more invested in... Woody Harrelson, and you get more invested in Matthew McConaughey and all of particularly their feud because they are very much partners that dislike each other in this film or in this TV show. And it it gets better after the first episode. So my my personal take on that is if you've watched it, if you've given it a chance and then you've said, you know, I can't take this, give it another chance and watch the second or third episode and see if it picks up for you. Because it really did for us. We're really intrigued now and want to know what's going on. But it just takes a while to get the ball rolling. The other TV we've watched recently, because the second season has come out, has been House of Cards. Holy crap, House of Cards. Adrian and I finished all of it, both seasons, in one weekend. And hands down, it's the best show I've watched in a really long time. Somebody was trying to get me to describe it on uh, Facebook, and the best I could come up with is it's it's the West Wing if it took place in an extremely dark world and Martin Sheen's character was evil. It's, of course, Kevin Spacey, and uh, Kevin Spacey really drives home an evil sociopath, which we know from much of his work, which 
it's, it's got to get frustrating for him sometimes. But <laughs> Or maybe he likes playing it, I don't know. But he just seems like such a nice guy when he's being interviewed. But Spacey does this so well that it's creepy. At the Oscars, he came out and he spoke in Frank Underwood's voice, which has a particular drawl to it. And I found myself unsettled with him just saying one line that has nothing to do with anything bad that he did in the show. He just said one line related to the Oscars in that voice, and I found myself creeped out with it. That's how much this character gets into your brain. And the lady who plays his wife, whose name escapes me at the moment, but she was the female lead in The Princess Bride. She was Jenny on um, Forrest Gump. And she is right up there with Kevin Spacey in terms of making the story intriguing and really selling that kind of person where there's loyalty there, but there is also sort of a sociopathic, I still have to get my shit done and that's always going to come first kind of attitude. Second season takes a spin. I mean, the first season is really good, but it all seems to go one direction and then second season left turns you pretty hard. I'd recommend sitting down, watching it all the way through. If you have a weekend and you want to know what TV to burn it on, House of Cards is a watch 48 hours of TV kind of show. That's really it um, for TV and for everything else I've had this week and the past four or five, however long it's been since I've published. Uh, Sorry again that it's been so long. I've missed you guys, but I've also been really busy and... You know, when you come home and you're kind of tired, you don't always do other things. So, sorry about that. I'll try and get the next one out sooner than this one came out compared to the last one. Yeah, you go ahead and diagram that sentence. But in the meantime, here's a quotation of the week. Can you tell me what movie it's from? Don't shake me, Mr. Quinlan. I'm contemplating my death. Are you with the angel? Do you see an angel? I don't think I do. Then how could I be with them? (laughs) Well, we don't know exactly how it works with angels. How it works? If he's in the room, then you're with him. If he's somewhere else, then you're not. And that's why we can't see him now. He's not here. Are you impaired in some way that I haven't noticed, miss? All right, guys, have a good week and uh, stay safe. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music provided by Latchy Swing. Hear more of their music at freemusicarchive.org slash music slash L-A-T-C-H underscore swing. Additional music provided by the following Creative Commons released artists, Chris Zabriskie, Nine Inch Nails, and Crete Boom. Check the show notes for more information or to download some more of their music. This podcast was recorded, produced, and distributed using open source technologies. The Bad Brain Curio Shop podcast is copyrighted 2014 and is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 unported license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org.